Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our Final Four and National Championship Recap, and we will also give our final thoughts on the NCAA basketball season as a whole. But we cannot do this one alone. We are bringing back... Um, a guest from a previous college basketball episode. We actually had him on to uh, preview the NCAA basketball tournament with us um, a month ago, and he's back again today. Please welcome back to the podcast, Henry Eisenberg. Thank you guys for having me on. Uh, we talked about how great March was ahead of it, and now it's over. Uh, a little disappointed, but still got a lot to talk about so excited about that so before we get into the tournament and the the final four in the national championship henry what have you been up to you've been up to a lot of things you got the you were at the uh, sweet 16 in philadelphia so uh what was that experience like yeah so i think since we talked i went to madison square garden for the big east tournament and that was very cool experience to be in what's deemed as the world's most famous arena. It's my first time in it. So seeing the teams I've covered all season, like all come into one was very cool. And then I was at the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight in Chicago, hometown, which was cool to see. The United Center from a different perspective um, and got to see the future national champion in Kansas there. So very, very cool stuff. Um, I'm happy to be back on here. And we're, we're, we're grateful to have you back on this podcast as well. And like you said, Henry, there's a lot to talk about between these, these three games that happened over the weekend. So let's start with Kansas and Villanova. Um, one of the big things to watch out for in this game was the, uh, the, uh, the absence of Justice, uh, uh, Justin Moore. Henry, I'll start with you. How much of an impact did Moore's absence have on the Villanova loss? Ryan, it had a tremendous impact. And that, I feel like it limited Villanova, of course, from reaching their full potential. I mean, this is a, a great team, but not a very deep team. And when you take away one of the key pieces and what Justin Moore made that backcourt with Colin Gillespie, one of the best in all the country. So when you take him out and you have to split minutes between Brian Antoine and even putting in Chris Archidiacono, younger brother of Ryan, uh, it's obviously not going to be as good of a team. And in a game where you're needing to hit shots, which they could not do whatsoever early, they only, they started the game down, it got to 26-11, 10 minutes in. And that's, they were able to come back, which I was very impressed with. And I think, I'm not, I'm not going to say they were going to win the game, but I did think, I do think that they would have had, it would have been a much better game. And with Justin Moore's scoring ability, even though guys stepped up, I mean, you had Brandon Slater hit four threes, Gillespie hit five threes, Caleb Daniels had a couple big shots. It's just, I tweeted this after the game. It's, it's tough to see this Villanova's team end on, on what could have been because the, 
this team was playing unbelievable basketball and leaving Madison Square Garden after seeing them cut down the nets, I thought they were going to do the same thing in New Orleans. So that, that was a little disappointing this year. Obviously, injuries, you can't control them. So it's just something you got to take on the chin. And unfortunately, the team, the team's depth was not prepared to have that significant of a loss. And I think you made a couple of good points, and I want to touch on that shortened rotation. Um, Villanova does not play a lot of guys. They only play about seven, six or seven guys a game. And Caleb Daniels was their main player coming off the bench. He ended up having 13 points in the game against Kansas. But you could kind of tell that Villanova does not rely a lot on their bench. Brian Antoine, um, he only had 19 minutes off the bench. He only scored three points. You look at other players that made an appearance in this game. Chris Archie Diacono, only two minutes in this game. Ninjoku, Patterson, both with one. You could tell that Jay Wright put the emphasis on making sure that the starting five makes the most impact on the floor. And I think not having Justice Moore was huge. And when you when you look at what he provides on the floor, great shot creating ability, great three point shooter, solid perimeter defender. I think those are things that in this type of a game you needed to have against a high scoring Kansas team. Jalen, your thoughts on Justin Moore's uh, absence? I mean, it was huge, more so defensively, right? I mean, let's go back even further, like to the beginning of the game, really. Kansas jumps out to an 11-2 start. When you're down a significant starter like that, that's punching the mouth number number one. That's humble off rip in terms of a game of this caliber for a team to jump out at you like that. Here's another thing. You talked about the perimeter uh, defensive capabilities of Moore. 25 of the first 28 points for Kansas was scored either by David McCormack or by Oshai Abaji. Two players in which... More he had the had more had the switchability of the switchability assets from his build in order to either switch onto these guys or to be asked by Coach Jay Wright to focus strictly on taking one of those two out of the game. Now, obviously, that's a very difficult thing to do, especially if we're talking about Oshai, who's somebody who can get hot in a hurry as a scorer. But he's also a guy that when he has a quiet night, you really feel it. And we saw that in certain parts throughout the tournament, and specifically in a game like this, Remy Martin didn't ever did not have a crazy performance as we had seen in some of the other prior games. So with Remy Martin having a quiet night, having more there to be able to take one of those other two guys out of their element would have been something that would have really helped them early on. Now, I don't think anybody necessarily saw David McCormack going berserk in the way that he that he was because in this game he kind of turned up especially in the first half he really made his presence known and that's where I think more would have been felt the most is on a bigger guy like that but overall I mean you just look at it the bench depth thing you mentioned beforehand too man I mean they win with the guys they they brought to the dance that's kind of just there's been their philosophy they've never really been a deep team kind of program over the last couple of seasons and the combination of those things, KU jumping out early, some of the defensive liabilities that they have across the floor with the fact that you have these two high-volume scores that can do these kind of things, and Villanova not really having the kind of versatility outside of 
probably Brandon Slater might be the only one that I trust to be like a versatile defender on these kind of wing guys. You put all that together and you're missing a way bigger piece than a guy that just averages 13 to 15 points per game. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think when you mentioned Justin Moore's impact, it was missed in so many different aspects that we've already touched on. But we have to look at his backcourt partner, Colin Gillespie, who now has played his last game at Villanova. And I have to get your thoughts on this, Henry, because you've covered the Big East this season and you know you focused a lot on Villanova. So my first question to you is, um, I actually want you to reflect on Colin Gillespie's career and what do you think is the next step for him now? I think Colin Gillespie, he's going to go down as honestly a Big East legend. He's a Villanova great, and that, that says a lot. This Villanova program has turned itself into what a lot of people are calling a blue blood, and he's been a recent big part of that. There there have been a lot of great guards to come out of this program, some off the top of the head, Kyle Lowry, you got Jalen Brunson, Ryan Archidiakono did it, and some of those guys have had success in the NBA. I I think I've seen that Gillespie will try to go through with the NBA draft process, and it may work out, but I really think he has a future in coaching, and I'm sure a lot of people say that and tell that to him, but his just innate leadership on the court and his ability, he just says the right things. He has the experience. He was a fifth-year senior this year, and especially with going to these final fours, he's able to lead the team. I just, I really like his future with coaching. And I think that's probably where he'll settle and not, not, not settle where he'll build his career. I think maybe some years in the G league, does he ever get onto an NBA roster? Not ruling it out. I think he, he could find a way, but I do think that he will have his most success in coaching especially being around what I think is the best coach in the country right now in Jay Wright. So if I, if I had to say right now where his next step is, I don't know, but I think in a couple steps, he'll be at that college coaching level. I think that's definitely an option for Colin Gillespie. Like you mentioned, his leadership, his leadership skills are something that a lot of people talk about with him and he has, those qualities, he's developed those qualities at his time at Villanova and getting that extra year at Villanova, because remember last year he tore his ACL and this year he was able to use his extra year of eligibility to come back, play with Villanova one more time and take them to the final four. And I think the best way that you could put it, Henry, Big East legend, and he's going to go up there with some of the great guards who have ever played the Big East. But I want to take that point that you made about coaching and transition it over to Jalen because we were talking about this before Henry hopped on. Jalen, you mentioned that Colin Gillespie was not even in the top 100 players for Tankathon. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting point considering that as a fifth-year senior, he's not the first fifth-year senior that we've seen try to make a run in the NBA recently, Chris Duarte for the Indiana Pacers. He was drafted in the first round 
and he was a fifth-year senior coming out of Oregon. So, Jalen, I want you to reflect on Colin Gillespie's Big East career, but do you think his next step is playing, or do you see him in a coaching role? So at the end of the day, I'm never going to disrespect the man's ability to play on the floor, especially when you look at, at the end of the day, you're going to get a pro's pro out of a Villanova player. Um, And that doesn't mean that just because he doesn't get selected as a draft pick that he's not going to be able to have impact on an NBA roster. Ryan, we've been doing this stuff in terms of talking about the G League with people who are within G League spaces, as well as doing certain stuff on our own in terms of covering the G League this season. We both know the impact the G League has had on the NBA specifically this year, but over the course of time with some of the players that have come out of that developmental system and been productive in one way or another. And there's guys like Gerald Green for Rio Grande, right, for example, who's an old an older NBA veteran who is still providing significant offensive impact for a team that leads the G League in scoring, and it's probably one of the teams that's like favored to win the NBA G League title right now based on just the landscape of things, right? All that to say that I don't necessarily think that just because he's not he's, he doesn't look super draftable right now means that he's not going to be a guy that could be productive on an NBA roster. The thing is, though, let's just put things into perspective. We're coming off a year where he averaged 15.6 points per game, 3.8 rebounds, 3.2 assists, shot just over 40% from three, which is always huge, shot less than 45% from the field, which is one of those things that is going to be talked about in terms of his efficiency as a scorer because as a point guard in the NBA, if you can't put the ball in the bucket, you really don't service too much anyway because the floor general only gets you but so far in today's game. Can Colin make his name for himself as a defensive guard? I think he has the capability of doing that. The biggest difference between a guy like Colin and Chris Duarte is wings are a low commodity with a high impact level from day one. Point guards are a dime a dozen. And it's been seen from a draft to draft standpoint that these, these guard, the insert guard here lineup of things is kind of similar to the way things are viewed with centers too. If you can get a guy who can be serviceable to get to step into a role for you, you can rinse and recycle these guys as you go along. Getting three and D caliber wings is something that does not grow on trees. And that's what made Chris Duarte different because his productivity plus his overall translation to what the game is now made him stand out where he was a guy who could still be taken as early as he was. I think the coaching route is probably where he will be quote unquote the most successful if we're talking about just like how it depends on how you weigh that, but I would say that's maybe where he has the most uh, potential immediate success. But I still, I still think Colin Gillespie is a way too solid player not to at least give the draft a try. And um, even if he ends up doing some G League stuff for a little while, I think he'll kill down there. So I don't think, uh, I think sky's the limit for him, regardless of when he's coming out of school. Yeah, I think he will definitely get some some looks from NBA teams. Because I think there are a lot of teams that could use an experienced guard. But I think what will be really interesting is what happens after the NBA draft process. What happens after the combine? If he ends up not getting drafted at all, does he try the G League route? Does he go overseas? Does he go to coaching? Because I think that could be really interesting with the idea that there could be a successor, so to say, with Villanova. Um, and maybe Colin Gillespie could be that guy. Or uh, 
you know, Jay Wright ends up staying there for another 20 years and he learns under Jay Wright, which I think could be huge for him. But moving on to Kansas. And one of the interesting things for Kansas in this game was the play of David McCormack, who had 25 points, which is a season high. He also had nine rebounds. Villanova just did not seem to have an answer for him. And I don't want, I don't want to phrase this question as like an X's and O's type of question. But Henry, I want to start with you on this one. How do you think David McCormack was able to take over the game the way he did? Well, I'll put it simple. Villanova is a small team. David McCormack is a big guy. He was able to have his way. And Villanova is a great defensive team. They're a well-coached team. I I think... Going into, I mean, at least the Elite Eight, I think David McCormick was overlooked a little based off of his postseason play. I mean, besides his 18-point double-double in the Big 12 championship, he hadn't eclipsed double digits in any game up until that Elite Eight game where he scored at least 15 points in the last three games of the season. So I think that his... He, he obviously has that ability. He's been one of the best guys for Kansas all year, but he struggled. And when you look at all you have to guard with Kansas, you're going to you're going to lean towards at least trying to guard Ochai Abaji, which obviously didn't work to start. And even the guys like Jalen Wilson or Christian Brown. So I think that he had the benefit of that. But once he started off hot, there was no stopping him. And he's been one of those guys that can be dominant. And we, I mean, we saw that especially in the, in the Villanova game. But then I will talk about the championship, I'm sure. But he did it again there. And I think that was really interesting because I think Villanova's front court is undersized. And I yeah. think that David McCormack, I have to 100% agree with you because he just the, – the game plan, it seemed like, for Kansas was – Let's just feed McCormack and then let him do his thing in the paint. And it just seemed to be one of the reasons why Kansas was so successful in this game. But Jalen, I wanted to get your perspective on this because I think the idea that McCormack was so unstoppable is a little bit of a surprise considering that he wasn't as good during the tournament as he was during the season. But what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, first of all, tournament of stars, that's how that works, right? The NCAA tournament makes stars out of anybody, and uh, it's all about grasping that opportunity. Just because David McCormack came on late doesn't mean that it wasn't something he was capable of doing. You could argue that Remy Martin didn't have a serious impact on this team throughout majority of the year, but he was a real driving force for the early portion of the NCAA run for Kansas early on, especially with the fact that Oshai Abaji didn't have really any, you know, tournament defining performances up until late. So you could argue that, you know, in one sense, Kansas had a late bloomer and another sense, they had somebody who kind of came on um, right when they needed them. And I think regardless, I think that actually comes down to the same thing. Regardless, they had a guy step up when needed the most. A guy like Mark Cormack was somebody that was able to take advantage, like Henry mentioned earlier, the size disadvantage that Villanova comes in with. 
And, you know, another thing that kind of just comes into that, don't get me wrong, Justin Moore's presence was definitely missed. But when it comes down to, like, these final couple of games, bro, the one part that sometimes takes Villanova out of things is the fact that they they tend to be a team without a guy. And when when you know when backsides get tight and things start getting really sweaty having that guy that you know you can lean on to to take over sometimes is the difference between winning or losing these kind of big games and in this game it was David McCormack but in other situations right Kansas is, is was lucky enough to really have two guys quote unquote that were capable of doing something like that with having a guy like Oshai in the mix as well and I would even argue that Remy Martin on any given day is a guy that you could say take us take us home and I just don't see anybody on Villanova's squad from what we've seen over overall this season outside of maybe Colin, who realistically, I felt like Colin kind of had a down year or at least let's say just a quiet year um, in comparison to like his, the standards that are set for him as one of the better guards in the Big East. So he did, he did win. Player of the year. Yeah, of course. No, I, I don't want to yeah, discount I him, I but I want to say, I yeah, I don't want to discount him. But in comparison to like what the expectation for Colin is, this was actually a, a little bit of a down year by his standards as well. So as a and even even with his play this year, I would never call Colin a takeover guy. He's a big moments individual, but I don't know if he's a guy that you say we have five minutes left in this game, we're down by eight, and I need you to bring us home. I don't know if Colin's that guy. And missing missing Justin kind of only piles on to that even more. So, I mean, just overall, you know, I think it was just good timing on Kansas to be able to get that from McCormack. But I also think they just had a handful of different guys that were capable. If it wasn't if it wasn't David, I I think it could have been Remy. Honestly, I agree with you in the sense that I feel like there are multiple players for Kansas that could take over. But I think when you mention the idea that Colin Gillespie is maybe not that guy that he can you know that you can rely on in the last five minutes to help carry your team to a win mm. I don't know if he single-handedly can do it I think Jay Wright relies on his entire team he relies on multiple players to do it he relies on Gillespie he relies on Justin Moore he relies on on Brandon Slater he relies on somebody like Caleb Daniels to come off the bench and help this team and provide this offensive spark off the bench. I think it's just more that they, he has multiple guys that he relies on, that he knows they can help win Villanova the game. So like mm-hmm. any given game, he could turn to Colin Gillespie or Justin Moore or Brandon Slater for that. So I, I see what you're saying. But you mentioned an interesting name on the Kansas side of things, Oshai Obaji. Struggling shooting the ball early on in the tournament in the first three games, um, he struggled, but he had his best game in the tournament against Villanova with 21 points. He also made six threes. Henry, I'll start with you. How important was it for Oshai Obaji to have a big game against Villanova? Well, I'll start with this on his struggles. Um, I was in the press conference after that. Uh, Providence win and Ochai had struggled to shoot the ball and he'd only I think he was two one or two for eight from the field so didn't take many shots and he didn't take many shots in any game of the tournament uh but Bill Self talked about how he still has a major impact despite not making his shots as well as 
everybody should be fearing with a this isn't a direct quote this is paraphrasing but <laughs> that everybody should be fearing when that lid does come off and the lid came off in this game and Ochai Baji is a great player and that's what great players do they find their shot and he did it and it was very very big for the Jayhawks and to have your star go out there and start four for four from three, like, there's nothing more, like, and that was in the first 10 minutes. He had made, that, the most threes he had made in a game was three, and I believe that was the game before. But hitting those four threes, first off, it gives you a big momentum boost, some confidence. I'm sure he has it regardless, but it's definitely nice to see the ball go in the hoop four straight times especially your first four. And also, it gives the team confidence. Your best player is nailing shots, and I think everybody fed off of that, and that's what Agbaji is a leader. He said going into this season, his role was to be the leader of this team. And so when he's making his shots, people are feeding off of it. And Kansas, in general, had a great shooting performance against Villanova, and that's what put Villanova away because the Wildcats were making shots too. And that's what brought them back into the game. But Kansas just never let up from on the offensive end. And that's what propelled them to a 16-point victory. This game was not as much of a blow as the score suggests. But that's because of Kansas's stellar shooting. And that, that starts with their star, Ochai Agbaji. I think Kansas set the tone early when they went on that 11-2 start because the one thing we really didn't see from Oshai Obaji in this tournament was an exclamation point performance. And I think with 21 points and six threes, this was the type of performance that we were hoping that he would have. And it came at almost a perfect time because you're in the final four against a great team in Villanova. And it was, it was the performance that not only helped him in this game and helped Kansas to win this game. But I think this helped his performance in the draft, in the draft lottery too, because I think this was the, the performance that proved that this was the Oshai Obaji from the regular season, big 12 player of the year, one of the top scorers in the country. This reminded us who he was. Jalen, I want to go to you on this because, um, I want to get your thoughts on how important Abaji was to Kansas in this game. But how high has he elevated his draft stock now after everything is all said and done? Keep it a buck with you? Um, Be honest with me, Jalen. This was a guy who, if I'm being like real, like this is a guy who was like slotted between 21 and 25 like a couple days ago. On Tankathon. Like, I remember that very vividly because I was trying to get an idea of the guys that were left over and what even mattered from their draft stock. Mainly guys like Caleb Love, dudes for UNC, right? Because Brady Mannix not going to be a guy that comes up on draft boards. I know he shot the heck out of the ball, but like, that's going to be a guy who's going to have to be like an interesting G League prospect or somebody who maybe plays overseas if he decides to take a long term 
um, yeah. route in terms of, you know, playing basketball long term. Caleb Love is a guy who, I, I mean, you could say he had a breakout season, but he actually just did everything he needed to do in order to be considered as an actual NBA draft prospect again, because last season, he he moved the bar extremely low after coming in as one of the high one of the highest recruited prospects, you know, in that group last year. And Armando Baycott, the center position is sketchy as it gets. If I go throughout the the uh, the big boards and a lot of the other stuff, the center position starts with Chet, starts with guys at the power forward position like Jabari Smith, Paolo, of course. Keegan Murray's more of like a wing. He just played power forward for Iowa. But then you start going down. Jalen Duran was a top five pick at the beginning of the year. Here he is at 12 to Portland on, on, on Tankathon. Mark Williams is a guy who was top 14. He's at 17 to the Pacers. Not that big of a drop, but still. Walker Kessler at 19 to the Bulls. I don't hate that that much, but we're not talking about the Bulls today. <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, this, this draft class in particular is very deep with big dudes and very dry in terms of guards. And so for a guy like Armando Baycott, I wanted to see what this would do for him. So when you think about the guard position, and we switch things over to Oshai, who we were talking about beforehand, this is one of those things where when a guy plays this well and has already been really good throughout the season, right? It was pretty much him and Johnny Davis for who was the best guard in college basketball this year not as a draft draft prospect because i still think Jaden ivy is the best guard draft prospect and i still would probably even still take a guy like ty ty over oshai for example but in terms of college productivity it was those two it was those two guys going neck for neck neck and neck uh oshai and johnny davis i think the big thing is when oshai plays the way we saw in these last couple of games specifically in the tournament that's the stuff that gives you this thought that maybe he can be an it factor dude at the next level. Um, unfortunately, though, I think the biggest thing that really like speaks to me about him when you look at the way this Kansas team is built is that he's going to need to go a specific place. Like, I do think that Oshai, for the way he plays basketball, he's going to have to go somewhere specifically that can really cater to the fact that he's more of a high-volume scorer and not an all-around point guard. Jim. I have, a, I have a quick question for you. Okay. Um, I when I think of Ochai, and obviously you're saying he's slated to go late in the first round. Io Dusumu just pops up in my head, not because they have similar play, but because of the position they're in draft wise. I mean, mm-hmm. both Dusumu was early second round, right, and. He was one of the most productive, one of the best guards in college basketball. And you knew he had the potential to do things in the NBA, but it wasn't like very clear. And that's why he did not go in the first round at all. Mm-hmm. I feel somewhat similar with like Baji. I know they don't have the same play style, but what, what do you think in that aspect? So the the funny part about that is it is more similar than you might even be giving it credit for, right? You're talking about a guy around 6'4", six, 6'5", six, with plus wingspan. He's going to be able to be impactful defensively. I would argue that Oshai's three-point shooting is a lot more real than yeah. the jump we saw from Io that, uh, that last year at Illinois. I think the jump was necessary in order to make him a guy that was really draftable. 
because outside of that, he was really a downhill athlete um, most of the time. Oshai, I think his three his three point shooting is real, and I think Io is developed into that guy. But as Bulls fans, we know this: Io is not a lead scoring type guard for yeah. our team. He is a ball handler. He is arguably our best defender on the perimeter, especially with the fact that we've been missing Lonzo and Alex Caruso miss so much time. Io is kind of cutting his teeth Jimmy Butler style, right? In this sense that he came in as a guy who maybe was a high volume scorer, but had to cut his teeth in the league early on as a defender. There's, I would, I would say the question is, can Oshai be a guy like that? I don't think, I think, he has the capability of doing so. I just like him more as a scorer as opposed to Io DeSumo. I thought his overall tools were there in ways that people weren't giving him credit for. And something that I think completely needs to be taken out of draft conversation in general is this idea that people are like, I don't know what position he's going to play. Like the word tweener kept coming up with Io, And it's like, dude, we literally live in a league where like center isn't even center anymore. So I don't even think like we should think about it in that aspect. It should be the idea of, can this guy be productive on your team? I think a guy like Oshai can be productive day one, but again, still look at IO's circumstances. He's not asked to be the first, the top score, second best score, third best score. He might even be our fourth or fifth best score on our team. He is asked to do something specific. He has been guarding the best guys on the opposing team on the perimeter all year. And he has cut his teeth doing that, and he has played well doing so. The question with this is, is there a situation where Oshai can be asked to be a microwave scorer off the bench and maximize that opportunity, or is he going to have to be somebody that has to go the defensive route as well? That'll be a really interesting question that needs to be answered, but that'll only be answered once we figure out what situation he's put into that's why i say i think where he gets drafted is going to have a really big impact on his trajectory i know they say that about all prospects but this is a guy with his skill set that i think it really where he lands is going to determine his early success a lot more than just his individual raw ability like some of these other top prospects jalen let me ask you something real quick before we transition to unc versus duke Mm -hmm. who is one team that you think Oshai Obaji fits the best on? Oh my God, let me tell you. The first team that comes up, and it's literally the team that Tankathon has a mock to, it's Atlanta, and it's not even a joke. Like, it's not even a game. Name, name a time in which you felt confident when Trey Young left the floor. No one's talking because anytime Trey Young leaves the floor, this team instantly creates palpitations in the chest area. You don't know how to breathe correctly while watching Atlanta play basketball when he steps off the floor. We've had a handful of guys for Atlanta run through that backup point guard position, right? There was the Rondo experiment. Jesus, that did not work. Lou Williams is a guy who I think is meant to be a microwave scorer, not meant to be a guy who can run an offense. Obviously, everybody, including myself, like getting the Georgia kid in, grabbing Sharif Cooper out of Auburn. But that's a guy that's going to be a slow burn in terms of our team as a guy that needs to still develop his jumper and work on just work on not being a high turnover dude because that was his biggest L in college uh, when he did come and play for Auburn was that he was a big, high spectacular play rate type of dude. But he also would give the ball away a lot, and that's one of those things in the NBA that would hurt. 
getting a guy like Oshai who can score, but it does it all under control. He's not a high assist guy. And obviously that's a really big difference in pace um, to a guy like um, Trey Young. I mean, we're literally talking 18 points to just under two assists per game this year. This is a score in the flesh. So that's probably my biggest worry about him being on an Atlanta team. But I, what I do know is that he can keep the ship afloat as a offensive threat for a team like Atlanta. Other teams that probably come to mind, I think the Wizards died and went to draft heaven because honestly, they're in a situation right now where like this is a draft where you can't mess it up. Unlike past drafts where we've looked at it and one wondered, should you have grabbed any idea or should you have grabbed somebody else? Um, I clamored for Seiko Demboya when we grabbed Rui Hachimura. I think I was wrong either way when it comes to both of them. No hate to Rui, but I just, you know, we're looking at different directions. Oshaw is a guy who I think is going to be able to step in as a backup backup guard early. But the teams that need the teams that need him the most, Atlanta, Dallas. I probably say San Antonio. San Antonio has so many guards, it's not even funny. They just need to figure out who their actual rotation is. I don't hate that, and I think he's a guy that can really develop well under that group, but they just have so many guards that they need to figure out. I think the Pistons would be dope. I just don't think they have a pick in the first they, – they don't have another pick in the first round um, to do anything with. They just have that top pick. So Yeah, I, I this isn't realistic, but I can just see him in Portland and just like some guards have been able to do recently. We talked about Trent. Before this episode, Anthony Simons, I think with the with the state they're in right now as a team, to give him the ability to just thrive and work on his craft at the highest level possible, and it's been successful for other guards. And Simons is going to either stay and get a bag. Oh yeah, the free agency thing. Yep. Or get a bag somewhere else, just like Trent did. So I think that. That would be a good fit for him, but I, I don't think it's possible. I mean, that one is realistic. I mean, Portland has six and twelve, and they have Oshai going fourteen. So, <laughs> I mean that that is doable. Right now, they have Portland taking AJ Griffin at six and Jalen Durant at twelve. I think that's their way of trying to boost up their forward position because of the fact that they kind of have a handful of guards, and I think they believe in Anthony. Um, they grabbed, um, they grabbed, uh, who was it in the LA Clippers trade um, as well? Keon Johnson. Yeah. They grabbed Keon in the trade as another, like another developmental piece. They've got guys like that already going. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're targeting the front court, especially because of the fact that I also don't think Nurkic is going to be there long-term either. Um, but I think Oshai would fit there too. That would be a really good one. Honestly, that actually is realistic. I think they should consider it. But it's Portland, so I don't know what the heck's going on there. <laughs> yeah, I think that team definitely – I think that team could use them. I think a lot of teams could use a backup guard who can score mm. 10 to 15 off the bench instantly. Because I think he's – I think, to me, Oshai Obagi is a bucket getter. But he's not somebody that takes 20 shots a game. I think he's somebody that takes the right amount of shots a game – that he is at his most effective. Um, but I think that this tournament game, he needed to help boost his stock up to be a borderline lottery pick. 
And I think that his performance in the, in the Villanova game was perfect. Looking at this UNC Duke game as the next Final Four matchup, this was a, a back and forth game the entire way. The largest lead was only seven points. Henry, I'll start with you. Was this the greatest game in the Duke-UNC rivalry? I would say in my lifetime, I can't speak for anything that happened before I was born. I've been on this planet for now 18 and a half years. This has got to be it. This is the first meeting they've had in the tournament, and it lived up to the hype, and it exceeded it. I I'd covered the Big East for most of the season, so I was – paying very close attention to that Villanova-Kansas game, and then I took a break and went to Raising Canes, which I do not regret whatsoever. But as a result, I missed the probably first 10 minutes of this game. But after that, I mean, it, it was just the blows back to back to back, the shot making, everything. It, it, it just, the game was elite, and I, I just, this is what really made me wish I was in New Orleans. I'd seen a lot of content there, but that atmosphere in that game, I just think whoever was there is going to remember that forever. And I'm sure, I'm just glad that, like, we were, everyone was able to witness that because, and especially considering it was Coach K's last game, we talked about him in the last episode, but um, to see, him go out like that I mean like UNC fans will always like I think and I'm Jalen I know you're a UNC fan right Mm. I feel like I can't speak for UNC fans but if if I was in UNC fans shoes I, I would think this would be one of the best wins in program history I mean I thought that that regular season win at Cameron Indoor to spoil Coach K's like going out party was one of the best. So putting it on the biggest stage possible, first time ever you're meeting Coach K's possible last game ever to send him off and to make it to the championship game and in a season that you got, I mean, in the middle of the season they were they were counted out as even making tournament so to mm. to make it farther than duke to a li- like to end coach k's career i think that's special for tar heels fans so without getting the x and o's of the game it was just amazing to watch yeah i mean watching that game from start to finish it made you feel like you were a part of the rivalry throughout the 40 years that coach k was there and it and, and speaking for, you know, more recency bias than anything, I mean, the past 20 years, watching, you know, guys like J.J. Redick and Jay Williams and Tyler Hansborough and, and Jerry Stackhouse and, you know, all these other, you know, NCAA legends, you know, competing in this rivalry, it brought back that nostalgia where it just was back and forth, all the scoring that you wanted, you know, the defense was there too. So I, I thought this was going to be a really high scoring game where both teams would reach the nineties, but 81 to 77, it's a, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty like, you know, tough score offensively. I think that, you know, North Carolina defensively, they were able to lock Duke down 
on the perimeter. Duke was only able uh, to shoot 22% from the three in this game. So I think you have to credit their perimeter defense for that. But this was pretty much everything and more that you wanted in a Duke-UNC game, except it's on maybe the biggest stage ever in a Duke in the Duke-UNC rivalry. But Jalen, as, as a Tar Heels fan, how did you feel after this game? And did you feel like that this was the greatest game in the rivalry? From the perspective of what was on the table, it has to be. Just because, again, the idea that these teams have never met in the Final Four alone sounds bizarre when you talk about the way this rivalry has went. Um, and you put that along with the fact that, remember, Ryan, what you said during our preview for this was, the, you remember, the, the the first ride versus the last ride was the way that you put it. And you put that backdrop of Hubert versus Coach K, and you just have to ask yourself, like, whose team is going to come out and play harder with their respective coaches' cause, you know, quote-unquote, at stake, right? And... This is one of those games that with all the marbles in the middle of the table, you're talking about the end of a legacy, the end of someone's season, a championship around the corner. It has to be the biggest game all, all ever. I've seen markets, I've hit I've seen Marcus Page hit game winners. I've seen my heart get taken out by Tyus Jones. I've been uh in situations like Lord, this kind of dates me a smidget, but like I actually live watched the game when Austin Rivers took us out, you know, and I mean, you know, not that was an attorney game, but nonetheless, you know, games like that, that really like will stick in like Carolina lore, at least like within like, like recent memory. Um, but this game has to take the cake in terms of like the stakes at hand. So, you know, without doubling down on what everybody else has said, like definitely one of those games that with what was at at stake, yeah, there's no way in the world there's a game bigger. But I'm sure there's a lot of other games that uh that definitely uh can, can be comprised in that top 10. And I think when you look at the the overall perspective of things, North Carolina has officially tied the all-time rivalry with 50 wins apiece. So I think that's going to be really interesting um, for future rivalries now that it's basically another chapter with John Shire and Hubert Davis um, as the coaches for their respective teams. Mm. Let's look at North Carolina for a second, and let's talk about Caleb Love. Caleb Love was a player that was becoming known for his second-half performances in this tournament. He helped North Carolina to defeat UCLA and Duke with his strong second half performances. Um, Henry, I want to start with you. And I kind of want you to consider Caleb Love's season last year and also compare it with his season this year. But what is he doing differently this year that he wasn't doing last year? I mean, if we're just looking at the tournament, I think that he was not talked about as much. I mean, this season, he had a solid season. I, If you look at last season, I don't have his stats up. I'll get them off. He was, I mean, not scoring at as well of a rate, wasn't shooting the best. It was only 26.6% from three. But this year, I think he just took more shots. And he, he was, he took the role of being that guy. And 
It's not some people will do that and they're not able to execute, but we saw with him and with some of the games he had, like that UCLA game where he had what twenty five points in the second half, he was able to be that guy. And that is what like we, I'll even talk about this. That's what got his Instagram up. We I saw there's like two hundred thousand followers on like before the or during the final four and then we check back in the national championship game is that like two hundred sixty thousand? he is that guy he was that guy for the tar heels they they had a great supporting cast. they weren't the deepest either but they did have a great supporting cast around him and they were all finally able to put it together and i think talking about agaji and him elevating the play of his teammates i think caleb love's teammates elevated the play of him and having Brady Manick, having some great shooting games, even his counterpart in the backcourt, RJ Davis, had some great performances. Uh, Armando Baycott, we, we've seen what he was able to do. He was dominant, first player in NCAA tournament history to have a double-double in six games. So I think that his teammates were able to elevate his play, and he fed off of that. But he was able to hit the big shots, and we saw that. I mean some of the shots he made and that final shot, that final dagger shot um, he had, which almost wasn't a dagger, but then making those two free throws at the end of the game up too with, I think, like seven seconds left or something to ice it, he was that guy. And I think that wasn't something that was very prevalent last year, and that's something that definitely came on towards the end this year. Jalen, one thing that we were talking about early in the season and maybe even before the season started was the type of impact Caleb Love would have going into year two. Now, let's keep in mind, last year, Roy Williams was the coach of this team. And this year, Hubert Davis is the coach of this team. So maybe that had something to do with it. But I think Caleb Love had this had these type of performances in him. But I don't think we were able to see it his first year at North Carolina. Mm-hmm. But as a Tar Heels fan, what do you believe he was doing differently this year that he wasn't doing last year? Is it the fact that he was taking more shots? Last year he shot 26.6% from three. This year he's shooting 36. That's really it. Not going <laughs> to lie to you. Everything else about Caleb Love, and I'm I'm not saying that to be like facetious. I'm just being real. Like that is the biggest thing because if you look at everything else across the board, let's really let's like really get into the nitty gritty. Less steals than last year, less blocks than last year, same amount of assists as last year, less than one, um, one like less than one point zero more than or ju- let's say just about one more rebound per game, shooting six percent better from the free throw line nearly 10% from th- from 3 and f- just over 5% better from the field. The dude still shot less than 40% from the field. So, if we're talking about what took him to another level in terms of being a real legitimate threat at the guard position, it was the ability to shoot the three ball. Now, truthfully speaking, I think that our the Armando Baycott has more to do with the ability of this team this year than these guards do 
Don't get me wrong. I think R.J. Davis played out of his mind throughout this year. I think Caleb Love definitely played up to his potential. I wish we could have seen this team with Darson Garcia. Dawson Garcia, Ryan, we talked about that off camera, that that could have been a really interesting dynamic during this postseason. If we could have had those two guys in the front court, still have a guy like Brady Manick on the on the wing and have our two guards the same. Yes, that would take minutes away from Puff Johnson. But I think we can agree that I think from a from a talent standpoint, Dawson Garcia is at least a better player within that rotation. So I think Armando Baycott being a top-of-the-league ACC player at the center position, a guy who was definitely giving um, Mark Williams, who ended up being, you know, defensive player of the year in the ACC, a run for his money throughout that throughout this year. And being able to be so dominant inside was what was able to open up things for guys like Caleb and, like, and RJ. I think that Armando Baycott unlocked this team. Last year was a weird year for Armando across the board. I think this year things made more sense. Things clicked a bit better. And by him being able to create space for himself down low and just be the physical brute dude that he was, that he, that he is, especially with the way he was coming out of IMG Academy, being able to just be big and strong and be strong and be big is basically his play style opened up a lot of things for the rest of the guys around him. And I think that's what helped a guy like Caleb Love. I don't think Caleb took any drastic leaps forward as a player. I think he just was given opportunities that last year he wasn't able to see. I think that's really what it was. Yeah, I think last year overall for North Carolina was definitely an interesting year. They were able to make the tournament. They were able to be an eight seed in the tournament. They were knocked out of the first round. This year, they come back revamped. They're still an eight seed, by the way. And this time, they make they make it to, to, to the championship against Kansas. And along the way, they beat Baylor, a great basketball team, and the defending national champions. UCLA, a Final Four team from last year. You knock off Duke in the Final Four as like the, the fitting end to a chapter in the Duke UNC rivalry and you know we'll, we'll get to the championship in a minute but I think Armando Baycott was a huge player in this in this tournament for North Carolina he was a dominant front court presence he he has had multiple 20 plus rebound games in this tournament hmm. and I I think that he he was he was definitely instrumental in North Carolina in getting to this point in the season but I, I think for Caleb Love if he didn't have those strong second half performances, we would not be talking about North Carolina Mm-mm. getting to the championship. These were the type of performances that helped elevate his draft stock. And I think it'll be interesting to see what's next for Caleb Love um, after this season, whether he stays in North Carolina or he ends up going to the draft. Swishing it over to Duke. I think this was an incredible last season for Coach K. He took his team to the Final Four. He's had he he has a couple players that are worthy of being first round picks. I think Mark Williams and AJ Griffin are definitely in that conversation. Focusing specifically on Paolo Bancaro, was his was his tournament performance enough to make you believe that he was the number one overall pick? Jalen, this time I'll start with you. Nah. I mean Maybe I'm a Ducator, and so I'm kind of like partially biased, and I'll take that one on the chin. Um, 
But no, like I don't really think so. I mean, if you go through and you look at the way this game went, Paulo Bancaro in the last five minutes of this game scored once, and it was a free throw. That was it. Your best player, when he needs you the most, he vanished avatar style on us, pretty much. If you're a Duke fan, you were wondering where Paulo was. Paulo made one free throw and missed the other one. They were down 67 to 68 at that point. That was at three minutes and 32 seconds left in the game. From that point forward, he did not score again. He did have an assist to Wendell Moore that brought the game within one point again at 73 to 74. Outside of that, if you look through, he didn't even attempt. Uh, yep, he made, he blew a layup that could have put them up 70 to 69. Blew a layup. And outside of that, he pretty much didn't attempt a shot in the last five minutes. For a guy that needs to be a difference maker at the NBA level, I still think he's going to go top three. But I think the fascination around Jabari Smith, if he decides to go, which oddly is actually in question, um, despite the fact that he's like mocked to be number one, Jabari has not really made his decision on whether or not he's going to commit to going to the draft. But the fascination with the builds of a guy like Jabari Smith and the builds of a guy like Chet Holmgren, I think they overtake anything that we've seen within this tournament. Henry, I don't know what you think about this. I don't know what your thoughts on him as a draft prospect are in in general. I haven't really thought about the draft too much this year just yet, but I don't know how this run makes you feel any different about Paulo because he really just did a lot of what he's been doing all year. I think having a talking or bringing up him only scoring one point in the last five minutes is a valid argument but i think especially at this level that's a lot of coaching it's not like paulo like he would in the nba has the ability to just take the ball and be like i'm just gonna do whatever i want in some circumstances he could i mean caleb love in a sense did that but He couldn't do that. And so I don't know if this tournament had an impact on my thinking, but I do think he is going to go first overall. Duke has done an amazing job of producing professional players in the NBA. This is a guy, I mean, he does have a great build. We talk about Chet Holmgren, who obviously is very unique. Jabari Smith as well. But I, I think that, his pot- Paolo's potential is right up there. It could be the highest out of all those guys. Mm-hmm. I, I I just I think that not not so much his tournament has affected my thinking on it, but just his performances in general. I mean, you saw in that UNC game, there were points where he was just taking over. You talk about Gillespie and how he may not be able to take over. Baron Carroll can take over, and he did. But I Agreed. think at the college basketball level. There is a much higher element of coaching in game, and it, it prevents some of these guys from being able to just like if Paulo Paulo could have scored thirty points in that game, he he only t- attempted one shot in the last five minutes. I I, I think that's more than Coach K, and I, I can't like obviously that's not that's an opinion that's not a mm-hmm. fact, but I I think that looking towards June and then be a draft, I would have him 
going first overall. If that's that's when the draft is right. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, personally, I mean, I don't have any hate towards Paulo. I, to me, you know, despite you know the whole Duke UNC thing, I have no hate towards Paulo. I honestly think that he deserves to be one of the top five picks in this draft. I just sim tankathon like eight times while we were talking. He did not move from three, and the only thing that changed was the team that he was on. That is not indicative of where he's gonna go, but that's just. I think that's more around the fact that this is a guy who. You know, 6'9", with the kind of build that he has, the ball handling ability and things like that, they're all things that are fascinating. I just think guys who stand at nearly seven foot that can shoot the three is the thing that really is like where the the, the league is transitioning. That doesn't mean Paulo is not going to be a really elite level player at the next level. Um, But I do think Paulo is going to be one of those guys that unlike maybe these other two who might be able to impact things, solo dolo and jabari that's interesting with his case because i think that he's just an untapped potential guy and i think that's what makes him a guy that goes in top uh top two and chet holmgren is a guy who i think people attach that unicorn build to i don't know if paulo has the kind of intrigue from a build standpoint that these two guys have i don't want to make this this conversation too much about the draft i think paulo played really well throughout this entire tournament um and i don't know if this tournament I don't know if if they won the tournament that makes Paulo a number one overall pick. I don't think I don't know if running the table and winning the tourney makes Paulo go number one overall, regardless of who ends up making that pick. So I, just, I think that's gonna just come down to I think these guys. When you talk about the top three in particular, these guys are gonna get divvied up based off combine stuff and who's at number one. Because at the end of the day, I think that's going to have a lot more to do with it because of like the idea of what flavor are you into in terms of the intrigue. I I, I think that's what it's all going to come down to. Um, to answer something that you mentioned, Jalen, um, Jabari Smith did declare for the draft earlier oh, cool. earlier today, so oh, okay. um, that news broke um, a couple on uh, a couple different sources. But I think I think Paulo is such an interesting player. I think he could fit on multiple different teams. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's just about where it's just about what team ends up getting the number one overall pick because I think Detroit could use him. I think Washington could use him. I think there's a couple teams in that early lottery in that early lottery pick status that can use a guy like Paulo Bancaro, and I think that this this tournament helped him to solidify that he's a top three pick. Number one, I think that's a I think that's tough because you have to consider Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith in that role, but I think it's ultimately the team that ends up drawing the number one overall pick that I think could decide Paulo's future. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the big game. UNC versus Kansas. Let's start with North Carolina. And Jalen, you already have your head down because you know North because North Carolina ended up losing in the championship game by three points. But I want to talk about one pivotal moment and Jalen as a Tar Heels fan, I think you know exactly what I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Armando Baycott hurt his ankle late in the second half as UNC was down by one point. A made bucket would have given UNC the lead. However, video has surfaced on social media of Baycott twisting his ankle on a loose floorboard. And I actually have the article on ESPN up here. Um, 
The article says slow motion replays, which later went viral on social media, showed what appeared to be a floorboard just outside the restricted area of the paint that depressed slightly under the weight of Baycott's right foot in the instant before he re-injured that ankle, the ankle. Baycott didn't mention the floor in the in the aftermath of the game, but the video of his right foot pressing down on the floor prompted countless retweets and questions about the caliber of the playing surface. This is by Pete Thamel on ESPN. Jalen, because you're the Tar Heels fan, I'm going to start with you. Should this be a bigger deal? I'm going to look right into the camera and let y'all understand. <laughs> I saw the Lego piece move. Okay? You can call it whatever you want to call it. Ryan sent me an article about the, the person who works on the floor um, before who worked on the floor before the game saying that the floor was completely stable. I saw the Lego piece move. If you want us to upload a slow motion clip for you on social media, I will do the service of doing so. I definitely scrubbed it back and forth on YouTube at at point twenty five speed to make sure that I was seeing what I thought I saw correctly. The Lego piece moved. Now, at the end of the day, should that be the difference between winner and losing? I think one pivotal moment doesn't tell the entire story. This was a team that was significantly up in the game earlier on. This is a team that blew a 16-point lead, as we, you know, we didn't mention earlier on, but this is one of the bigger deficits that's been overcome in a championship game. And there is such thing as just letting the ball drop. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Now, there's a lot of stuff that happened for UNC. Puff laid it out. You know what I mean? Puff Johnson literally got to the point of throwing up on the floor on the floor. Brady Manick, he took a tumble on the very last play of the game that apparently, due to sources, uh, per sources says, was actually drawn up for him, not Caleb Love. Nonetheless, Caleb Love is a guy who also tweaked his ankle. R.J. Davis did not have a great game. Leaky Black had one job, and it did not, it, it did not suffice. You know what I mean? So am I going to blame the floorboard for why we lost? No, because and I'm glad Armando did not bring it up because honestly, that is nothing more than an excuse. There is 16 other points to be accounted for that were not scored by us. And one possession in which we did not score is not going to be indicative of whether or not the Tar Heels would have, could have, should have won. Um, but I saw the Lego piece move in case people was wondering. Nonetheless, it was a good game by Kansas and they did exactly what they needed to do in the second half. This is a team that we saw play really well throughout this tournament and they have resolve they had resolve and they played really well and this was a game where i think that the injuries and some of the the other things across the roster just were piling up on a unz on a unc team that was making a little bit of a cinderella run in their own respects and the fairy dust ran out and that's just how it went and sometimes that's just how these tourneys go we saw that with the peacocks a couple rounds before and unfortunately, the Tar Heels had to be on the receiving end of that fairy dust running out at the last minute. So, you know, call a spade a spade. I did see what I saw, but at the end of the day, I don't think it, it tells the whole story in terms of things. All that to say, I don't think it should be a bigger deal than what it already has been, um, despite the fact that I do feel like it was a pivotal moment in the game. Henry, your thoughts? Well... Uh, first off, I think UNC and their play was very impressive. 
especially getting punched in the mouth twice. I mean, figuratively and literally with Brady Manic. Um, but I think that, like, the fact they started off down 7-0 and, like, we're in for a long game. This is, this is not looking good for UNC. They just had their big game against Duke, and then they come right back. That's something that Villanova wasn't able to do right away, and that's what ultimately put them away. But this UNC team came back, and not only were they just hanging in there with Kansas, they got, they entered halftime with a 15-point lead. Now, was there still – I were they still – like, after seeing that, was I like, this game is over? No. Would I have probably said that if Kansas was up 15? Yes. That's what comes with being – I don't think you can call them a Cinderella. I mean, they're a blue blood team. But this very impressive run they've had. So going into the second – or going into the second half when Kansas had that huge comeback, I thought it was impressive again that UNC held them from just continuing to extend the lead because when – Kansas started to make it a game like this game is over. Kansas is going to win. They're, they're just the better team in this situation. And it felt like it was a little difficult for UNC, even though they made it look effortless. It, it felt like it was a little difficult for them to like just continue to build onto the lead. And they got it to 15. And the fact that Kansas was able to take it down so easily I thought they were just going to run away with it. But then UNC hung in there and they made it a game. And you talk about Baycott getting injured at the end. That's out of anyone's control. But I, I just I think that Kansas was a better team and the better team won in this game. UNC had a very, very impressive tournament run. The fact that they were able to put everything together Credit to Hubert Davis, his first year being able to do this. I know it's not his players, but still, coaching is a big, big impact. So I think that this this isn't as much about UNC, like, failing to get it done. Like, the fact that they got here was very impressive. I think this was big for Kansas, big for Bill Self, happy for him. I mean, this is only a second title. You think about – um his great coaching run at Kansas, this was only his second time getting that title. And to do it in New Orleans, a place where 10 years ago he lost in that championship game where he got so close, I think it's very special. Happy for all those guys. Another point where in that 2020 season that got canceled because of COVID, or I mean the tournament got canceled because of COVID, Kansas was the complete favorite in that season. So I think this is a little redemption for them two years in the making. So I'm happy for them. But I feel like North Carolina, you can't hang your heads at all. And getting that Duke win, I think, obviously, championship would be very sweet. But you still leave this season with a sweet taste in your mouth. I don't think any UNC fan expected to be in this situation. I'll put another thing into perspective, and Jalen, as as a Tar Heels fan, I think you might be happy to know this one, to know the to know this fact. Hubert Davis is the first first year head coach to go to the NCAA championship since nineteen eighty nine, mm-hmm. when Steve Fisher did it. 
I think that's something we have to really consider when we talk about the past season for North Carolina, where they did not look like the the ACC title favorite team, but they looked like a championship team heading into this Final Four. They looked like they they looked like they had a legitimate chance to win the championship after they beat Duke, and they held their own against Kansas, but. This is not the first blown lead that they've had in this tournament. Remember, they were down by 25 against Baylor, and they almost lost that game. But you're down by six this time, you're down by 16 this time, and unfortunately, this was a deficit that they could not overcome. Now, I think the injuries to Armando Baycott and Caleb Love, both hurting their ankles, that definitely had something to do with it. I think if the play that they had originally drawn up for for Brady Manick to go to the corner, I I think if he gets the ball, he makes that shot. It's a tie game. So there's a lot of things that it could have been. There's a lot of things that we could consider with this game. What could have been, much like with the Villanova game, because I think the Villanova-Kansas game was a what could have been game because I think Justin Moore's impact could have turned the tide where Villanova could have cut the deficit closer to single digits. I think the final play is a what could have been. Because, you know, Armando Baycott, what if he didn't tweak his ankle in the final minute of the game? What if Caleb Love didn't get the ball and it went to Brady Manic instead? I think that's more, I think not the entire game as a what could have been. That single play is a what could have been. But I think you have to create Kansas here. And they had a, a phenomenal game um, offensively in the second half. And I think the one thing that they did in the second half the, that they didn't do in the first half was that they played a faster pace. Because I noticed something in the first half, and I, and I think Charles Barkley brought, brought this up at the halftime report. They kept feeding David McCormack down low, much like they did in the Villanova game. And it wasn't working. So they had to switch it up and they let their guards take over. Oshai Abaji had a pretty good game. And I want to transition to that because Oshai Abaji was the most outstanding player in this tournament. But I think you could argue with how good Kansas was, and I want to allude to something Henry mentioned earlier. There's multiple guys on this team that you can count on. And I think that that's where the question um, comes down to for this for this segment of the podcast. Do you think Oshai Obaji should have won the most outstanding player in this tournament? Because I think there's strong consideration for Christian Braun. I think there's strong consideration for our, for Remy Martin. I think there's. I think based off the last game, I think there's there's slight consideration for David McCormack. But Henry, what are your thoughts? Honestly, this is it's a great debate topic, the most outstanding player, but the award doesn't really have much weight in anything. I think do I think that Ochai Baji was the best player on the court in this final four? I don't know. I like you can make it like 
you make the case how dominant David McCormick was in that final, in that um, final four game, but Agbaji's impact on this team all season has been very immense, and I think that I I, I don't I don't want to say like another person deserves this award because I really think that Agbaji had such a great impact even in these games, and that the the start he had in that final four game. I really think separated Kansas from Villanova and completely, and that was the winning, how they won that game. Did he have the best game against UNC? Scoring-wise, definitely not. But it's it's your impact as a player on the court. If you want to talk about who was the most dominant, I think David McCormick deserved it. But... These these awards really don't have much significance. It'll be it'll be nice to be able to say, but I'm sure these guys are just happy that they they're able to take a championship on the Lawrence. Jalen, what are your thoughts on this? Because I think there could there could be an argument for other players winning this award, but I think Henry makes a good point. How impactful is this award? I mean, I think that's the main thing. Like, I don't think it's that impactful at all. I think when you win the national championship, the best team on that team, the best player on that team gets the award. I think it's really like that simple. Osha Abaji is a guy that was in the most outstanding player uh, conversation in terms of the country, right? We're talking about the the Naismith Player of the Year Award. So being a guy in that kind of conversation, being that kind of lead dude for your team, and your team winning the championship, best player, best uh, best player on the best team, wins the big boy award. I really don't have too much else to say outside of that, just because again, I think Henry put it really like blatantly, and I think he put it as correctly as he can get that it doesn't matter. Um, it matters to the player who gets it, of course, and it matters to the team for them to be able to see a guy like Agbaji who's put the kind of work that he's put in this year. Uh, receive something like that. But at the end of the day, I think that Kansas just ended up being the better team. Um, and they were the, the stronger team in terms of closing the game out. And that kind of, I mean, the national championship itself probably matters a ton more. I think you could have honestly given this award to multiple players along with Oshaya Baji. You, could, you probably could have given this to Remy Martin for what he was able to do off the bench in a couple of these games. Christian Braun had a great game. Uh, I don't know if the stat sheet will will show his impact, but I think Christian Braun, this entire tournament, has been an impactful player. And then David McCormack, based off of the last game, you know, he was really dominant against Villanova. I think he could definitely have a chance to win. But um, I think that this was, this was, you know, a really dominant win for Kansas. Bill Self able to get his second title. I can't believe it's a second. It's only a second. But um, for him to get his second title, I think, is huge. He's actually the uh, the first Kansas coach to win multiple titles. So I think that's a huge accomplishment for him. But congratulations to Kansas. They, they definitely earned this one. Um, that's going to be it for this episode of the Hoop Talk podcast. And I want to swing it over to Henry to – Give us his final thoughts on this episode or in this episode and any work that he has to promote. Well, first off, Ryan, Jalen, thank you for having me on, not just this time, but last time as well. It's been awesome. Uh, To recap the season, I think 
this was the first time I've been completely, completely invested with a college basketball season. So there's going to be some bias to it. But I think having the turn, every, this season was really everything getting back to normal after COVID. Last year, there weren't really fans in the stands, even in March. So to, to get fans back, have those that passion, it felt like it was restored, uh, especially in March Madness. So to see a normal tournament, see like the shots of the Superdome when players are shooting free throws and just a sea of people. It, it's just very special. And I, I love talking about college basketball. I mean, even though the season's over, there's a lot left. I mean, there's over a thousand players right now in the transfer portal. So that's going to be an active thing. Uh, but it's just, it's on to next year. It was an awesome year. We've already seen some way too early top 25s. And Arkansas is a team that's getting a ton of love, which is crazy to think. Like, this is the first, I mean, Arkansas and Houston are the, the one and two right now. And that's, I mean, that's cool. It feels very refreshing to see you're not seeing like the Dukes, the Gonzagas. I mean, Gonzaga's not blue blood, but like those blue blood teams, you're not seeing one of them be number one. So very excited. Um, right now, I don't have any work to promote. You can follow me on Twitter at Henry E. Eisenberg. Uh, that's pretty much it. Thank you guys for having me on. Always a blast. Yeah, I, like I said earlier in the episode, um, we're very grateful to get Henry on this podcast today. Um, very grateful to have him on the last episode too. Um, he's definitely an up and coming analyst in this space. And if you don't know the if you don't know the name Henry Eisenberg, he'll figure it out, man. Figure it out. Figure it out. All right, transitioning to our question of the day for our fans: What are your thoughts? on the college basketball season overall after the national championship. This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure we subscribe to us on Apple. You rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.